3: equal housing opportunity.
1: Really
4: excited about our next guest, Larry Diamond. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, uh, co-editor, founding co-editor of the Journal of Democracy, senior consultant at the International Forum for Democratic Studies of the National Endowment for Democracy. China! Right.
2: (laughs) We're going to talk about China.
4: (laughs) His research focuses on democratic trends and conditions around the world, and he's just been part of producing a big new report about the way China is trying to influence... The West, in ways both uh, savory and unsavory, including the United States. Looking forward to this. Uh, Larry Diamond joins us now. Welcome. We appreciate you uh, joining us for the podcast.
2: It's a pleasure.
4: So, uh, listen, the, uh, the current zeitgeist is to hang on every mention, every uh, whiff of anybody talking to any Russians and act as though that is uh, self-evidently a betrayal of the nation or a dangerous activity and that sort of thing. And I'm not uh, downplaying uh, Vladimir Putin and his plans, but it's funny that no such uh, sentiment exists about our many, many contacts with China.
5: Well, I think that's beginning to change. And uh, we make very clear in this report we've just released with the Hoover Institution that we do not want to generate or feed a generalized hysteria about China or contacts with China, and certainly not about Chinese-Americans or even Chinese visitors in the United States. But they do have an agenda here to penetrate and sway our democracy, and we need to wake up to it.
2: And how are they going about penetrating our democracy?
5: Well, uh, not as uh, deeply and alarmingly as they have in Australia and New Zealand where there's ample evidence of them really having uh, penetrated politics uh, through campaign contributions and uh, enlisting for the work of their companies and business people, uh, former prime ministers and former ministers. Uh, But, you know, they are – Uh, moving deeply into uh, universities with very, uh, uh, I think, unhealthy conditions and lack of transparency in terms of some of the relationships. Uh, When they have exchanges with think tanks and universities, often they will uh, eliminate people from the exchange list, from the ability to participate in a conference. If they don't like their politics, uh, they are very selective, increasingly so, in the granting of visas to journalists and scholars and so on, so they can send a message that if you criticize China, you'll be denied access. Uh, they're getting business people to do their bid, American business people to do their bidding and <clears throat> uh, appeal for their policy interests with the U.S. government. Uh, They are stealing our technology uh, and uh, misappropriating uh, intellectual property. Uh, They're sending uh, scientists and engineers to work in university and other labs in the United States who are affiliated with or working for the People's Liberation Army and disguise their real identity so it looks like they're just honest scientists, and then you wake up and you find, just read the newspaper on a a daily basis, whether it's quantum computing or electric uh, uh, cars or gene editing or whatever, that there's artificial intelligence. They're surging ahead of the United States in technologies that will not only determine who leads the world economy, but looking over the not very distant horizon, who will have military superiority. Well, I I
4: appreciate your uh, disclaimer at the beginning of our our chat about not, uh, you know, causing some sort of generalized hysteria about the Chinese people, but that sounds like serious concern about serious issues. This is not ticky-tack, you know, uh, trying to gain a little bit of advantage. This is serious stuff.
5: I think it's very serious stuff, Uh, and so do, uh, you know, a significant number of uh, people who've spent their lifetime studying china who love china uh, and who have joined in this uh, working group uh, report that we just released Uh, we just need to be what we call in the report constructively vigilant we need much more information uh much more due diligence about who we're dealing with on the chinese side And that's partly a responsibility of universities, think tanks, media, uh, state and local governments that are being approached for investments or uh, for exchange relationships to investigate who they're dealing with. But the federal government also needs to give these organizations and actors more help (laughs) in in trying to understand uh, and know who they're dealing with. We're so
2: used to military and economic su- superiority over everybody. It's been that way for quite a while. Um, the economic stuff is out there for everybody to read, you know, the various gauges of sizes of economies and that sort of stuff. But how about the military stuff? I remember there was a statement out of the Pentagon not too long ago that we're approaching a time where we we would not be able to win a war against China. Does that uh, sound accurate to you?
5: Yes, it does. Uh, after talking to a number of defense and uh scientific uh, analysts, uh, because I do not present myself as one of those in a technical sense, I think it is not a hysterical concern that they're they're raising. I I think it's well-founded. And the reason why that we all need to keep in mind is that we're increasingly entering an era of what they call asymmetric warfare. And by asymmetric, um, what is meant is that we may have more aircraft carriers and we may have uh, battleships, destroyers that have more firepower than the Chinese. But uh, if the People's Liberation Army can disable our ability to communicate with them, uh, then uh, for example, or uh, find other ways uh, through long range highly precise missiles that they're developing of actually sinking uh, an American aircraft carrier, then the fact that we have more than them and that they have more uh, firepower isn't necessarily going to help us to win a war. Increasingly, I think the next war will be, uh, if there is, God forbid, a major war between major powers, it'll be heavily driven by uh, information technology, and if they have an edge in that, they may have a war-fighting edge in general.
4: Is is it realistic to think that at some point in the future, near enough to matter, we'll convince China that stealing all of, uh, say, a company's uh, technological uh, um, information is not an okay way to do business? I don't see them giving in on that point.
5: Well, uh, that is a very plausible scenario that they won't. Uh, And if they don't, I think we need to respond in a number of robust ways. Look, I I think uh, anyone can Google me and discover that I've been uh, extremely critical of President Donald Trump. But on this issue uh, of trade with China, and in particular, uh, the abuse of the trading relationship uh, that is most dramatically evidenced by their their theft and misappropriation of our intellectual property. I think Trump is right on target, and I can tell you, uh, during the late summer, I spent 20 days uh, in Asia, and uh, I was surprised by the number of people in India, in in Thailand, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan. were telling me even people who were you know environmental activists and obviously on the political left in their countries uh, that they are very grateful to donald trump for standing up to china so i think in the current trade negotiations we need to take a tough line on this and uh, if they're not willing to change their practices i think it should have not only significant consequences for trade but for the granting of visas to the people who are coming here and stealing this corporate and scientific technology.
2: Does China see us as a threat, or is it cultural that they want to be number one? What keeps them from just wanting to be you know, one of two superpowers that does very well in the world?
5: Well, uh, I think... That all rising powers, uh, rising to superpower status in world history, want to be number one. So it would be, you know, really, I think, an ethnocentric mistake to call that cultural. Mm. Um, I think that it's not so much fear as ambition. Uh, They are a rising superpower. They are, after all, the largest country in the world in population. And you've got to keep in mind Chinese history, that China once was the Middle Kingdom, a great center of learning and commerce, uh, the most successful, or certainly at various points in world history, one of the most successful, advanced, admired civilizations in the world. And I think beyond any kind of Communist Party doctrine, because they're not trying to make the world communist, Uh, but they are trying to penetrate it and sway it to its point of view. Uh, They do certainly seek domination within Asia. I think there's no question about that. They're trying to push the U.S. out of Asia militarily and to marginalize it economically and geopolitically. But after Asia, what? You look at what they're doing around the world. There's these similar influence efforts Uh, In Europe as well, Uh, they've got this Belt and Road Initiative that's extending their economic reach and clout and domination, I would even say, in Africa, Latin America, and elsewhere, Central Asia, Uh, and it looks like a a pretty global ambition.
4: How different has the leadership of Xi Jinping been uh, from his predecessors?
5: Well, that's a good question. I think that there is both a qualitative and uh, an incremental difference. The incremental difference is, look, as you go from uh, Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao, uh, they each have had 10-year terms, and now since 2012 to Xi Jinping, you do see a progression in China's reach and ambition and boldness on the world stage. That's an incremental evolution of Chinese power and ambition. The qualitative one, I think, is that she is much more aggressive and um, bold and uh, unapologetic about his uh, intentions. And you look at what China has done under his leadership to build these islands in the South China Sea out of nothing, dredging sand and creating uh, new islands, which they are militarizing with air bases and radar stations and so on. And you see an aggressiveness that we haven't seen before.
2: Yeah, I've read a number of stories about uh, China showing up in countries where they just never seemed to have any interest before or couldn't have any interest in the Middle East mm-hmm. or sending ships places. That seems to be ongoing.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they've got a military base now or some kind of base in Djibouti in the Middle East. And, you know, they want to be a world power. And I will repeat, they are the largest country in the world. They've been the most economically dynamic country in the world. Um, They're a permanent member of the Security Council. They increasingly show up to international meetings astonishingly well-prepared, and, you know, they increasingly are able to dominate the agenda because of that, which is to say, I mean, give them credit for this. They are doing their homework on international issues. Uh, So, you know, uh, they are a rising global power, and we better wake up to it. You know, Russia has hacked our election and attacked our democracy in a way that no other country has ever done but china's uh breadth of penetration of our society our economy our various democratic institutions is far broader than russia's and china's potential to eclipse the united states uh, as a world power is is dramatically greater than russia's which has a tenth of the population of china and is never going to catch up to the United States again, militarily or economically.
4: Let's talk a little bit about the Confucius Institutes on American university campuses. I've been harshly critical of them. I've, I've read the summary of your report. You're a little more charitable. To me, they are, you know, uh, they're, they're so obviously a way to get Chinese propaganda and or intelligence agents into the country. Any, any benefit seems to me incidental. Is that too, too cynical?
5: it's probably a little too cynical uh in, in in the following sense i mean we have a confucius institute here at stanford frankly i don't know what it does there's a plaque on a wall there's never been any sign that they have much impact i think the way to uh to think about it is as follows uh at you know well-resourced colleges and universities stanford berkeley so on that have um a lot of resources to fund their own language instruction. A Confucius Institute is probably just a small layer on the top uh, that if the relationship is transparent, uh, you know, might add some some marginal value of of teaching or or cultural exchange or so on. But at the many, many colleges and universities, not only in the United States but in, in Europe and elsewhere, where they don't have the money to fund Chinese language instruction and this money is very valued uh, and it's kind of the only thing going, the opportunity to kind of drive the agenda of what's discussed about China is much greater. And I think the bottom line we came to is uh, that these contracts that universities sign between uh, the university and the uh, agency in China within the education ministry called the Hanban that runs these things, they're all secret now. And it is just a violation of academic freedom and proper procedure in universities for any such contract to be secret. Uh, So, you know, if universities are going to sign these things, They've got to be transparent. They've got to be subjected to faculty review. Everybody's got to know exactly what's in them. The curriculum needs to be open to inspection, and there needs to be no commitment of any kind to issues that are off the table for discussion in the classroom or on the university or college campus. And just and for, personally, I don't think the Chinese will agree to those conditions.
4: Uh, for folks who are not familiar with it, how many of these Confucius Institutes are there in the U.S. at this point?
5: I think Roughly. there's uh, like 150, something like that, and wow. several hundred
4: in the world. Wow. I just, you know, I, I, I appreciate a mid-level uh, university really wanting to be hip enough to have Chinese language and cultural, uh, you know, Information available to their students, but these CI's, the uh, Confucius Institute, seem to me the the guy who's come to defile my sister, but he gives me ice cream. I mean, I'm just not going to be that grateful for the ice cream. I know why he's there, but you know, I wouldn't
5: quite put it in the provocative terms you did. But here's how I would put it: We want our young people to be learning Chinese and to be able to engage in a. Uh, effective way, uh, you know, the largest and one of the most powerful and dynamic countries in the world. So that's all good. But it shouldn't be funded by the People's Republic of China. Let's pass a new National Defense Education Act, like we did in the Cold War with respect to the Soviet Union, and have the U.S. government stepped up to the plate to to fund college and university language instruction in critical languages like Chinese, Russian, Arabic, and Farsi. I think that's the proper response.
2: I know that you have written a lot, books, uh, articles um, about democracy, the promotion of democracy around the world. In the last couple of years, democracy has been taking a hit and uh, receding on the world stage a little bit. How much does it concern you that if China were to become the dominant economy or a, a peer of ours, a full peer of ours militarily, there'd be less of an argument for democracy. I mean, for quite a while now you've been able to say, look, to the world, the most powerful, richest country in the world is a democracy. Well, if if you can say, look, the world's most powerful country is a dictatorship, that's going to be more of an argument for that, isn't it?
5: Uh, it's a very trenchant point you've just made, and it is one that the Chinese are pushing when they bring journalists and politicians from developing emerging market countries for training and cultural exchange, increasingly they are saying, we have a better model, we have a more dynamic model. And our challenge now is not only to wake up to to inform ourselves about, to be vigilant about, and and to strengthen our institutions against these forms of inappropriate influence and penetration. But we've got to make our own democracy work better Mm. uh, and in a less dysfunctional and polarized way if we are going to be able to make the claim that democracy is the best form of government uh, and can actually deliver practical solutions to people's
4: problems. You need to be able to stay solvent, for instance. Oh, 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 my goodness, yeah.
5: Yep. We
4: could start there. Absolutely. Well, there's there's absolutely no arguing those of us who've spent any time looking at it about the efficacy of dictatorships for doing certain things. They're not bogged down by the whole voting ridiculousness or
2: environmental and, concerns.
4: And and you know, building coalitions uh, in the same way.
5: I got to tell you as a social scientist who studies this issue that um their argument which you've just kind of Advanced as a as a hypothesis uh, really doesn't hold water. Uh, if you look at the evidence, all the evidence, and not just cherry pick China or you know South Korea uh, from the 60s through the 80s, uh, you find that the democracies do, uh, on balance, uh, at least as well, and in in some places in historical periods, including Africa today, better than authoritarian regimes. In delivering development. So their argument isn't even true. Oh, I believe that
4: wholeheartedly. You wholeheartedly. I was just talking about the short term, you know, the the appearance of a benefit. If I'm an African warlord. The trains
5: run on time. Right. Right. Sure. Well,
2: you know, you're probably familiar with Tom Friedman's articles over the years in the New York Times about how much more efficient China is because of the way their government works. Yeah, Correct.
4: Yeah, if you need 50,000 miles of road built, they're going to do it a little more quickly in China, but there's an enormous uh, cost to that.
2: For instance, including trying to manipulate how many people you have in the country and how many kids people can have. I mean, when you start, you know, uh, drilling down that deep in society, it gets complicated. That's one of their challenges going forward, isn't it?
5: Well, it's much worse than that. I mean, they're getting rid of the one-child policy now because it's had the perverse effect of creating a rapidly aging society. In fact, they're freaking out about it. It's happening so fast. But the more ominous thing, and this gets back to your point about what what the implications are for the future of freedom in the world, they are creating an Orwellian surveillance state in Most cities now, there's a surveillance camera on, you know, every corner. Uh, They've got the most sophisticated surveillance cameras in the world. They lead the world in the technology of digital facial recognition so they can figure out who it is on the streets who might be holding a protest sign or whatever. Uh, They've got technology that they can go up to someone and say, give me your cell phone, and then basically suck the whole contents out of it so they can see what they're reading and who they're talking to. Increasingly in Xinjiang province, which is a completely totalitarian situation now uh, in the northwest of China, they've got not only uh, hundreds of thousands of people in concentration camps for, quote, re-education, but they're swabbing everybody's DNA to build a complete and total portrait of every individual. I mean, this is almost beyond George Orwell. And this is what we're looking at when artificial intelligence and high technology meets, uh, you know, a Leninist Communist Party state.
2: And perhaps gene editing uh, babies to, you know, who knows where they're going with that. So, yeah,
4: Right. You know, I worry that the history of mankind is that, the tighter dictatorship squeeze, the more likely it is that uh, that rebellions will emerge and, and resistance will grow. But with the technological edge that uh, China, for instance, has these days and the measures you were just describing, I, I don't know how you get a nascent uh, rebellion going.
5: Well, I think we've entered uncharted territory, and we we actually don't know where this is leading. But you asked before, what are they afraid of? And the answer, I mean, the real answer is, I don't think they're afraid of the United States. They're afraid of their own people. Mm. And that's why they're implementing all these measures.
2: That's interesting, which is always the case with dictatorships. Well, they're, that's they're, clearly true. Their yeah. biggest concern is, you know, a rival in their own country kills them in the middle of the night, not not another country.
4: Mm-hmm. So if we were to kind of drape a... a an overall theme around the conversation about China and its efforts to infiltrate. What was it? You had a great quote from Malcolm Turnbull, former uh, Australian prime minister, uh, covert, coercive, or corrupting efforts to penetrate and sway. If you were to just describe what our attitude ought to be broadly toward China, toward Chinese scholars, Chinese companies, Chinese initiatives, how would you summarize it for the layman?
5: I would say, uh, I'd use the term we use in the title of our report, uh, constructive vigilance. We need to educate ourselves. Our national government institutions need to help local institutions educate ourselves, not to sever all ties with China. That would be a huge mistake. But to go uh, into these ties uh, mindful of the risks, mindful of their agenda, aware of who we're dealing with and what their hidden ties may be to the Communist Party state, and demanding uh, both autonomy for ourselves in deciding who's going to be involved in the exchanges or relationships, and reciprocity, that they shouldn't be able to have unfettered access to our society, our institutions, uh, our politicians, and our not being able to uh, send journalists and scholars and other actors over there on more or less our own open terms. Larry
4: Diamond, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, really, really interesting conversation. Can't wait to read uh, more of the report, and we'll have a link so that our uh, folks can find it very easily. We sure appreciate the time. Well done. Thank you so much. Thank you.
2: I do think that that's... uh he called it a trenchant point. I, uh, I don't know what that word means, so I didn't know if he was saying uh, that's a good point or, uh, or uh, uh, you know, why don't you let that's the grown up speak. No, no, that, that's um, a compliment. No, but I do, <laughs> I do I do have the concern that if the most powerful country in the world is a dictatorship, it's a lot harder to sell democracy.
4: Yeah, well, and we have to sell democracy. I was actually going to ask if we got a chance, if, if Larry's familiar with the book I've referenced many times, The Dictator's Handbook. Um, subtitle: Why Bad Behavior is Almost Always Good Politics by Bruce Bueno de Mesquita and uh, Alistair Smith. And, and they talk about how effective dictatorships are at certain stuff, but then they get into the fact that if you're talking about clean water, adequate medical care, uh, uh, um, life expectancy, uh, infant uh, mortality rates, just every measure of you have a not miserable life, democracies always win.
2: Well, and number one, I know, is always innovation. You do not right. get Steve Jobs coming out of dictatorships. Right. You just don't get that. Right. This is
4: impossible. Which is a drum we ought to be beating like crazy all the time. Because, listen, if I'm an African uh, dictator, Number one, I should be deposed immediately. <laughs> you should, You can do better than that. Um, but if I'm an African dictator and I'm thinking, hmm, hmm, do I go with the American model? Because, you know, my people are starving. I've got enough money to distribute to the elites in the army, so we're okay. Okay. The Treasury is good enough to keep me in power, but barely. Do I want to go the American model? Do I want to liberalize? Do I want to give people rights and and have them vote and risk losing my power and and probably being tried for my many crimes, financial and otherwise? Or do I want to embrace the Chinese model? You know, we'll keep a dictatorship. We'll liberalize uh, around the edges uh, economically. But yeah, well, you will surveil our people and tell them what to do. Please. Please, Warlord Joe is not going to take three minutes thinking about that, and that's why you've got to just absolutely promote the value of democracy as hard as you can. He made a, and you're, going to, you're going to lose a lot of those, you know, those those
2: battles. But he made a good point.
4: But, uh, but I'm sorry, but that shining example is still going to be out in front of the people who are oppressed, and you hope someday they're going to overthrow me and and get to what's actually good for them.
2: It's just human nature to want to be number one. That's just, I mean, that's just the, way all, the way everybody's built. So it's not something special to the Chinese that you're on the cusp of being number oh, yeah. one. And, you, you know, if you're the number two NBA team right behind the Warriors, who's going to say, that's good enough. Why can't we be number two is great. Or the number two Proust expert. Yeah, number number two is great. Right. That, that's yeah. just not
4: the way anybody is built. So do they have and I'm serious about this. Do they have foam number one fingers in China? Are they make them in China. God, I wonder if Do they, make... they have them for, you know, whatever, you know, Hunan province beats, uh, you know, the other province uh, in soccer. Do they wave
2: foam number one for In my lifetime, will China be the number one economy and the number one military power in the world?
4: Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Probably
2: almost certainly the economy.
4: If you get hit by a bus today,
2: no. No, they will not.
4: <laughs> There's, see, a lot of variables. <laughs>
2: That's a trenchant point. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I hope you've enjoyed the Armstrong and Yeti podcast.
3: Residents at Brightview senior living communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events, chef prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort style amenities, and high quality care. Everything you need is here.